We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Thank you for coming to another episode of the Darkened Hour. And with me is a very special guest, somebody I've, um, an instance I've never done an interview with a first responder, and this is the first time, and I couldn't ask for a more prolific uh, guest. He is the president and CEO uh, who has over 45 years of experience in the fire service, emergency management, operations, research, training, and academia. His name is Richard Rotans, and his eclectic career has him functioning as a program manager in New York City's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, co-developed and performed as the executive director of the Applied Science Foundation for Homeland Security, co-developed at Delphi University's graduate degree in emergency management, and performed as the first commissioner for the Office of Emergency Management of Nassau County, New York. During the September 11 attacks upon New York City, and after digging his way out of World Trade Center One with his staff, he reinstituted and relocated the destroyed emergency operations center to Pier 92 and managed the multi-organization response of over 120 agencies, organizations, and businesses to the 9-11 tragedy. Welcome to the show, Mr. Rotens. Much please. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a concierge, so I'm always addressing people by their last name, and it's all a respect issue. Um, if I ever called you Mr. Rotans, don't take offense, but I'll, I'll call you Richard. But thank you. Um, you know, just coming across your bio and reading your history the last week, you have a, a an illustrious history working as a civil servant in the fire department. So I think we should start there. Uh, when did you start your career in the fire department and what made you interested in this field? Well, back in the late 60s, my father was killed in line of duty as a police officer in 103 precinct. So I wanted, you know, when you're a kid back then, I wanted to go into uh, the uh, Army Rangers right at the bat. And so when I went down to Fort Benning, the guys from the 103 precinct said, get home, kid, take care of your mother. Hmm. So when I went home, my mother goes, once you join the fire department. So I did that with the volunteers for a while. And I came on to the job in the late 70s. And I worked in companies that 120 truck, rescue two get promoted to working with the Corona Tigers, get promoted to was open the firehouses. Then I went to the safety battalion, all special ops and so on. Uh, did a lot of research on bunker gear and uh, safety research on how guys were getting hurt or killed. Then I went over to, uh, was asked to go over to uh, uh, OEM and uh, just the beginning of 2000 because of the background research and planning. And uh, that was my responsibility to uh, be the chief editor for all the emergency operation plans, as well as manage the EOC when necessary. And, uh, and, and from there, after, after I was uh, asked by County Executive Tom Swazi in 2002 to start up his OEM agency, which I you know, can't turn that down, you know, start a government agency. 
And I was asked to create graduate degree programs in Adelphi and St. John Jay and on and on. So I really had a good career. You know, now I got two sons of the captains, four sons of the cops, guys, Marines and Army and so on. So it's a family tradition. It goes all the way back to 1812 in the military. So, uh, so far, so good. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. And you're always active. You just received your PhD um, uh, at at the Walden University, right? Is that what? Well, my PhD was like three years ago. Yeah, three years ago, and uh, is in the public administration, specializing in policy and operations. Have you always? I mean, it, it seems that your whole life has been nothing more than just always on the move, always uh, doing something. Is that installed in you, even your children now? I mean, my my sons are like I said, my daughters with their careers and school teachers, whatnot, they don't let me more go into their feet, that's for sure. And now they're they're having their own families as well. Right. And, you know, e even throughout the, you know, your career with the fire department, has there been at any point in time that this notion of radical fundamentalism would ever become prescient in your life? I mean, has there, has there been any, like, study or interest in the fire department regarding radical fundamentalism before the 93 bombing? Before the 93 bombing, uh, I was watching, you know, the national, you know, circuit, so to speak, and, uh, you know, the guys and the, the corner of some of the Marines that were killed, uh, you know, all of a sudden Pakistan's got a nuclear weapon. Things That's that the, like, the Beirut barracks bombing, right? The Beirut. Right, yeah, and, uh, you know, 220 Marines. And all this, you know, instability that was going on in, uh, in uh, Pakistan's now got a nuclear weapon. India's got a nuclear weapon. Right. And you do, I would see these uh, in Bushwick or some of these mosques and so on. You have all these guys walking around with bats and so on. It just, you know, I was starting to get curious with, with what, why is this, you know, evolving? And when we got the hit in 1993 in, in February, I said, this is not going good. Especially when you had the guy, uh, the blind sh uh, cheek. Omar, uh, Omar Abdel Rahman. You know. Yeah, and on um, Park Avenue, right in front of the 230 engine there in, uh, in Marcy, so to speak. And uh, I said, we got to, I hope somebody in both our agencies, FBI and CIA, do something about this because it's not good. And when he got the bombing, and then uh, I was hearing bits and pieces, so the, uh, there was threats to the Vatican about flying the jet into it. Hello, right, right. how about we take our airlines and really secure them down? They gave billions of dollars to do that. And in my opinion, the airlines failed miserably. All right, and yes. they uh, don't have they don't have the even besides TSA lock the cockpit door. I mean, have some type of bolt action with that. That you know, but that's neither here nor there. When uh, and I, I I really feel that our agencies have failed us big time, and even today, you know, and uh, you know during the uh, emergency operations center, then uh, I guess like October two thousand one, one of the guys introduced me to these two guys, uh, one from CIA, one from FBI. They had just some kind of arrogance about them. And I just sort of kind of ignore them. They were saying, like, what's your problem? I go, what's my problem? Let's say Kenya, Somalia, 1993, mm -hmm. uh, Lebanon bombing. Oh, what about behind? Look behind you. Look at the picture. 343 guys. See ya. You know, that, that's, there's, there's, so much, there's so much intelligence that's out there. Even today, I'm watching uh, a very dangerous thing going on now with the China, Russia, Brazil, Iran. They're all going through their own currencies. That's not a good sign. They want to do is in big time by by the back door with a dollar. But that's neither here or there. But yes, to answer your question indirect in a roundabout way, I had some thoughts about it. But I was too involved with uh, fire fire safety for the brothers on getting them better gear and find out how they're getting killed and hurt. Did you did you manage to respond to the ninety three World Trade Center bomb when it happened? 
Now, later on, I was in the I was in the Queens, so I wasn't initially there like I was in two thousand one. What was the uh, response by the fire department in uh, in regards to an incident like that? Did they manage to uh, formulate any internal divisions relating to international terrorism after the ninety three attack? Well, they had special operations command. They were drilling for that, and we were drilling that the day of the uh, the attack. Right. All right, and uh, we had fire, police, sheriff, uh, sanitation, education department. We were going to conduct a large scale bio defense drill at Pier ninety two, and that's how we got the real estate for the uh, EOC. Right. Right. On Tuesday, on Wednesday, the twelfth of September, we were supposed to have fifteen hundred cadets and two hundred uh, probies go through and see how fast we could give out doxy, cipro, and so on, and just from pills and do a, a time series analysis and so on. But it never happened. All right, let's let's talk about that. Uh, you were actually in a meeting with First Deputy John Oldermatt and the Planning Supervisor Mike Berkowitz. On actually, you were on I think the twenty first floor of the World Trade Center, and you were running twenty third, twenty third. You were running a bioterrorism drill located at Pier ninety two. Tell tell us a little bit more about this. Well, it, the, 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 we were getting ourselves prepared, the tables, equipment, and so on. The you know the M and M's and peanuts or what have you to give out his pills. And we were discussing that about finalizing the uh, the report, the the functions and activities. And with that, we just hear this amazing sound of a jet that mm. just like we're looking at each other. Like, That's way too close, and we then heard the explosion. And we we looked out, we see the you know the damage and the carnage. And Mike went to start up the EOC. I went down uh, to uh, establish a command center and the fire safety director desk. And uh, you know the biggest hazard right then and there were the jumpers. All right, and the debris was still coming down. And when I met up, the safety director was establishing communications with the EOC. And then, you know, my commissioner, Rich Shearer, showed up, and a few other people. Then, uh, first of all, was uh, Joe Pfeiffer. And yeah. me and Joe were discussing about the issues of what's going to go on and so on. I just told him, I go, Joe, I'm going to activate the EOC. If you need something, you know how to get me. And I left him there. Go to Tower 7. And I told the security, go look, 4, 5, 6, and 7, tell security, evacuate the buildings and go north. Just get out of here. Because, you know, because at that time, going back to Tower 7, the second plane hit. And uh, it was, was take rocket scientists to, uh, you know, realize that we're under attack again. Correct. And, uh, did, you order, did you order the first evacuation? On oh, Tower 7, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You ordered the Secu evacuation. Security had no problems with that. No. You, go, you, you got it, boss. Yeah. So just say, make sure everybody goes north and get out of the target zone. And then when I get upstairs, I told my staff, I go, folks, we're out of here. All right. And uh, they went downstairs, went out the back, and uh, we evacuated the building. Myself and uh, my partner, Rick Bialik, went down to Tower uh, Tower 1, and that's where I saw Joey, Father, uh, Judge, and someone at the end. Yeah. Came away. They went one direction, I went the other, just to get out of the building. And with that, Tower 2 came down. Now, you have to understand, it's like being inside a foxhole, and you got grenades all around you. In, your, uh, in that building, we thought the side of Tower 1 fell down. They had no idea that an entire building collapsed. Even though the floor shook and threw both of us about twenty feet, right. they, uh, it, you know, when it when it stopped, it was a dead silence. And then we started the light here, like spears coming through the smoke. And we uh, fell it about maybe 10, 12 minutes, which sounded like it felt like eternity. We got outside of the north side of Tower One and worked our way down to the uh, escalator that's uh, outside escalator at uh, Bessie Street. And that's how we got out. And, uh, it was a mess. And then as we're going up uh, North Broadway, then we heard the, 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 the Tower 1 coming down. We're still picking it on our minds now. Now the rest of the building's coming down, not knowing the two came down. 
because you're right there in the middle of it, and it's so right. large and so so devastating. So, and then we got up, like made the turn onto Barclay, and this wall of gray smoke went right. Through. It was like like a curtain, and yeah. uh, went by. So uh, then we tried to regroup ourselves. Rick went to get the folk to get the command vehicle, and uh, I had I saw one battalion chief all covered with dust, and uh, I'm saying that go how many of the guys on that side? Because I think your two of your kids are here, which they were. I go, do you know where they are? Because I have no idea if anybody's alive over there. So, and they said the same. They were told about me that I had perished, right. and then we found each other on Western Vesey Street, and then we got ourselves cleaned up, and you know, the rest is going on. Yeah, you know, just before that, I believe, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the first fatalities was Father Michael Judge. Um, I, I Feynman was killed by a jumper just before him, and then the judge collapsed from a heart attack. Yeah, judge collapsed from from a heart attack. That was the uh, the concern initially. It wasn't so much the towers collapse; it was the jumpers, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. When uh, operations were undertaken by Joe Pfeiffer in the North Tower, I I I'd like to know if if you can expand on this a little bit. What were the initial? Uh, I guess the initial steps taken was it to basically put out the fire or basically get people out of the building, maybe a mixture of both. Were there other steps taken during this? Well, you know, the, the, I saw a lot of the staff come there, like Ray Downey, Chief Downey that was killed. Yeah. And uh, he was talking to a friend of mine, Patty, uh, Harry Hatton, the camp to rescue one. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget, you know, as long as I lived there, Ray said, I didn't plan on going out this way. He knew that this is, uh, this is going to be the, uh, the biggest one of our lives. And what uh, I, I'm trying to coordinate communications from the fire safety director's post where everybody was and the EOC get that set up. And uh, there was discussion about getting people out of the buildings, get them out, and then try, then try and attempt to put the fire up because they don't know how much damage there was to the stamp pipelines. All right, when that plane hit, they, they said, well, first of all, you had that one woman that was burned that was screaming in a hallway. She was burned by the fuel, jet fuel that ignited on her. Oh. And I thought it was very uh, honorable that the two French uh, videographers they never took pictures of her. That's right. Which I thought, yeah. yeah. And uh, she's there. She was 100% burns, first degree burns. But I understand that she survived. And uh, you could smell, you know, the jet fuel downstairs because it came so down, burned. You could actually smell the jet fuel even. Was it that yeah, prominent? You, you could smell it. It wasn't that, you know, profound. But you right, could still right. smell the jet fuel. But uh, I, I saw Joey there with, you know, he's directing guys to go to staircase B where he sent his brother, Kevin, who never made it back. And uh, a lot of the guys. So it was a combination of get the people out and let's see if we could extinguish it. But but how long are we going to to uh, to work on this job? Because you know, there was too many structural insults to tower one at the time. Was it a lack? I, I, my next question would be because I I've heard from reports that you basically took the stairs because the elevators were were malfunctioned at this time. Yeah, yeah. No one trusted the elevators. No one trusted the elevators. No one trusted the elevators. And by going up the stairs, this because you're trying to reach 80 floors and t- and that's just undertaken with so much weight that the firemen you that firemen carry up these stairs, and time is not of the essence. Um, wh- how what was the what w- what was the was it the lack of water or is it the worry that the fires would expand northward or southward? What what was the what was the the more 
I guess, prescient worry with the firemen themselves trying to reach the higher floors? All I, all I know is for, for the guys I talked to that made it out of Tower 1, uh, is that their main concern was to try to get you know, people out. Sure. All right. And when I heard other guys on the fire floors, like, you know, had the Oriel Palmer was indicating that there's a multiple 1045 code ones meaning dead. Right. And multiple 1045 code twos means severe. And uh, some indication that there was body parts everywhere. The ones that you know, came back down. But that was my intention was, it was inverted to get the EOC evacuated. And by the time it came down. So, uh, when Tower One came down, I go, we lost a lot of guys. Not knowing that two came down and one right. came down, and Pete Gancy, Feehan, Downey, they're all gone. You know, now it's like, okay, now what? And people don't understand the devastation of those two buildings collapse. I think, to understand what the the, the uh, situation reports indicated that the people that do the earthquake measurements was like two point two on the Richter scale on yes. both buildings when they came down. And uh, you know, it's. The devastation below the buildings, you know, you had steam lines, sure. power lines, water lines, communication was gone. Uh, you had uh, the railways were, were, were destroyed, the roads were destroyed. And plus they had the fact that a bank with a billion dollars worth of gold and silver. What are you going to do with that? You know, so the, uh, the feds took care of that. But uh, after that, you know, that night I went home, got showered off and changed and came back to work. And the first EOC that we had, we were borrowing the uh, library at the, the police academy. And then myself and Henry Jackson, who was another deputy commissioner at the time, he's still there working there today as chief operations officer. We uh, we built on upon the the uh, real estate of P ninety two to build the EOC. Did you did you manage to go back to the World Trade Center seven after the collapses of one and two? Yeah, what happened was uh, Pete Hayden, God bless this guy, I love him crazy. He asked me to go with um, Chief Rauch, Deputy Chief Rauch, and another battalion chief, but I can't remember his name. I think he passed away. He said, look, guys, do me a favor. Just take a look so you see if it's worth putting these guys back to work in the Tower 7. Hmm. And I was, I was like a little shocked, like, okay. As you went around in front of the building, you looked up, there was massive holes that you could drive a tractor trailer standing on its hind wheels going through the building. Massive in World holes. Trade Center 7? Seven. Yes. Up parts of 40th and 30th floors. Just a lot of destruction. So the three of us went into the uh, into the building. We walked up the stairs, and the, what got me in the third floor was, you know, the open third floor was just the, the buoyancy, negative buoyancy, just dust standing right there in the middle of the, in the air. It wasn't moving up or down. It was just very, it was there. It was very stagnant, very eerie. We got up to the eighth floor and worked our way down the hallway, and what we saw was, was somewhat bizarre. was a uh, an elevator box, elevator car down the hallway. Not in the shaft, <laughs> down the hallway. And it was wow. like five or six floors above it with no floors. Our main concern was let's bang under the elevator, see if we get in there to make sure no one's in there, but there wasn't anybody in there. And we looked at each other and said, time to exit stage, right? We're out of here. Because you could hear the, the fire on the upper floors. You could hear the, the building creaking. And we came downstairs, we're out of here. And we told Chief Hayden, this is coming down. And it did about seven hours later on. Yes, it did. Actually, you actually there was a um you actually gave testimony in a uh, a civil case of Aegis Incorporated versus World Trade Center Seven, and that was, I think that was on May fourteenth of two thousand and nine or ten, um, and you actually testified that when you were surveying the building, there was other fire chiefs, and I think those fire chiefs, if I can remember, one of them being um. Uh, Anthony Varal, I think, or or was he a fire chief? I think it was Anthony Varal or um, um, Frank Carruthers, I think. 
And yeah, the base, the base, the the argument, the uh, question I, I have for you was that they had met an engineer whose name was not known at the time, um, and basically surveyed the building with the chiefs and basically said that this building was in danger of collapse because of the amount of damage that was at the uh, southern uh, edge of the uh, southern corner of the south side of the building. That the, the damage that you described, which was basically a vertical, I think, like this huge gash in the building, and of course the the fires that couldn't be put out. Um, were were you part of that group initially? All I did was I reported it to Chief Hayden, okay, and if Crothers is there, I go, and even Roush was doing most of the talking. Goes, we're not going in there. We're not going in because because of the you you felt that the building was in danger. <laughs> Didn't take a rocket scientist to say that, you know. Right, right, for sure. Now, also, was there a water problem? Because I heard that they, they the reason why they couldn't put out the fires was because the water lines were severed. Was that right? Well, a lot of the, the hydrogen fire lines were uh, severed, but that's why they had the uh, the marine units stretch their uh, five-inch hose to uh, supply water. Okay. But that wasn't done until everything was collapsed. All right, they had to survey the whole area, and you still had the fire. There's a lot of things that were going on. Yes. But it's a bit many people realize that I mean, you had insult to the slurry wall, right? The slurry wall, if that would have caved in, would have drowned everybody working on the hull. And that was a, one of the first uh, structural components of the World Trade Center back in the 70s that kept back, you know, the dirt and waters from Hudson and uh, right. Hudson and the Bay. That's what's, I think that was called the basement that they called the basement of the... Well, and, you know, that, I guess they called it the basement. I never heard that term, but I know that the slurry wall was one of the things that were being considered about uh, if it were to collapse and be serious. Right. Um, we, uh, we we would meet over at the firehouse on Dwayne Street. And one of the suggestions I made, because I've done some land surveying teams, was to uh, bring in uh, EDMs, electrical the, the, the distance measuring devices, and start lines going down West Highway. And this way, you could survey exactly where the buildings used to be right. and to grid out those areas in the 75-foot section. And that's what they did. Uh, because you have to have some type of coordination. And I go, with all the noise that's going on, we're going to need some type of code or some type of siren. And I think they, some of the guys were getting the loudspeakers from like Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium and whatnot to hit it a couple of times. Everybody would stop because something's going on or that they found a the body. So uh, a lot of things were ad hoc to do, do the operations at the, the event. But meanwhile, my main concern was getting the EOC up and running. Yeah, that was the first and foremost, right? Because you need right. a command center. Right. right. Well, they had a small one uh, was going on in the school, but down the block, but that was a mishmash of things. So we, once we got ourselves activated, it was Tuesday, and I think it was like Thursday night we finalized. And uh, when I went to PN92, yeah, had a lot of uh, guys from uh, Longshoremen, construction workers, and mm -hmm. someone just sitting around, you know, what are we doing up here? We need some help. So I got it soapbox. I swear, Adam. An actual soapbox that said soap on it. And I stood on the go, brothers, I need your help. I identified myself as deputy commissioner and captain Mitchy Rote and said, why we need to build this command center so we can help the brothers and sisters down there. Are you with me? Hey! So they just, you know, yeah. they did anything we did. We set up the tables, set up the wine, we set up the phones, the radios, the computers, the whole bit. And the guys were great. And they raised the podium up so I could oversee the whole operations. Uh, they, were, they were really good. So we had that done in the first operation that was started on Friday. Was it was it a, was it a worry of the fire department and the other emergency services? Was that uh, after the collapses had had happened, uh, that you had an influx of volunteers that wanted to help? Was that? Oh a God! Yeah, 
look, a lot of the guys that are on a job were in volunteer fire companies in the, uh, the five counties surrounding the city, Suffolk, Nassau, this, that, and the other. And uh, they're all lined up on West Highway. So I came with, I took uh, my partner, who's a sergeant at NYPD, and we took another guy from the military, went up to the guys, the first truck, I go, guys, we love you crazy, but you can't go in there. Yeah. But why not? I was like, look, your Scott mask and your uh, uh, other type of SEBAs don't match. Your nozzles don't match. Your radio communications don't match. And we don't want to have any more but they killed. You got to go. They caused a little disturb. But we, uh, some guys, they snuck in, but we got them out. Right. Because we didn't know, we don't, first of all, we don't know who's who. Okay. Right. And uh, we don't make sure everybody's okay. But that was, a, that was another challenge amongst many. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Uh, I, I, I've always been, because uh, I, I was living in New York when this was, was going on. And I know that you couldn't get anywhere. There was like a, um, a coordinated effort. And I, I think it was maybe six or seven blocks. It was uh, cordoned off from the public. And you basically had to have a, a pass of sorts to get in the area itself. And I think the military was involved in coordinating these. Well, what it was is that the uh, NYPD, along with uh, the military sheriff's department, and uh, you know, we had a meeting like once a day with every <laughs> security thing you could possibly think of. FBI, CIA, NYPD, sanitation police, sheriff's department. Sheriff's department is unbelievable. These people are fantastic. Sure. School security that were there saying, what, what are our needs? So if the city needed to can't fulfill the needs, the state would step in. If the state can do it, the feds would step in. So it was a very well coordinated fashion that we had a one one deputy chief, I believe, from uh, corrections office. He was in charge of uh, his credentialing. So he you had a color code, the red, white, blue, and black. Black mm -hmm. was classified. So if you had that, you could go anywhere. But I'm telling you, you know, some of these people, you got to give them credit. They're sneaky bastards. <laughs> I. <laughs> The two, these two sheriffs, real big, you know, big bulky black guys, they were great. They would drive me down to the to the site. They did my one hour survey every day, and uh, a guy came up to me. He goes, "Who are you?" I go, "Excuse me." I go, yeah, "He goes, three no, apparatus, yeah. and just throw up the bucket to advertise it that they're uh, still in their apparatus." Fires. <laughs> I was like, "It was nuts." People want to go down there and pray. You had uh, in the EOC, we had so many actors and actresses. And ball and sports celebrities they wanted to help. Okay. You had Valentine for the Mets. They go, Can we do phone banks for you? The Sopranos. I mean, uh, you know, uh Bent Middle, all these people that came down, they just wanted to help. And uh I thought it was great, but you gotta get away from the dust. We have no idea what's in it. Oh, I'm surprised that uh, I'd never heard this before that uh celebrities actually wanted to help. A lot of oh yeah, oh yeah. They uh, they're very concerned. What can we do? And I said, just you know. To support us in spirit, but right now we can't bring it down there because when we sure. get her, we um, yeah, then it's also an insurance issue, you can't uh guarantee their safety and stuff. So, um, yeah. you know what? I have a question for you, Richard. Um, were you, were you surprised that the towers had collapsed at all? No, not at all, not at all. I uh, you, you got to think of that. These, these planes they built up to like 550, hitting it with how much? I mean. Like thirty thousand pounds of fuel. Yep. I mean, I don't think I don't know if any type of building could withstand that. And uh, the first building went down was Tower Two because it got kicked in the knees, while Tower One got kicked in the shoulders up higher. Right, right. Up so high, the right. guy that hit when the guy hit Tower uh, Two, he knew what he was doing. You know, and uh, no, unfortunately, both came down. Was it also? Um, you know, I've dealt with uh, people in viral media and organizations over the years 
um, regarding World Trade Center 7, which has been a focal point in the 9-11 truth movement. And um, the question I have for you is that, uh, you know, there, there's been arguments about whether there was explosives used or incendiary devices used in World Trade Center 7. Have you ever experienced anything like that? And what would be your response to that? I was interviewed by BBC and a few other people about that. <clears throat> I, I I didn't smell explosives. I didn't hear he brought, uh, uh, the popping before the building came down. So I, I I highly doubt there was any explosives. These buildings were hit, and they were hit hard. And they came down in a pancake fashion, the way it's called progressive collapse. And just like Tower 7, even though it's folded in like closing your fist, they came down because of the weak instructions of uh, the fires and the impact from 1 on to 7. Yes, and just and just to elaborate on that because I, I this is an area I don't uh, really talk about because I'm, I'm not an engineer and I you know I I wasn't inside these buildings and I I, I would rather defer to the people who are you know ex experts in this field or people like yourself who was there in the buildings. Um, the the damages in World Trade Center Seven. Now I, I know there's not a lot of video regarding the south side of the building. But that's where the majority of the damage was. Was that is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there's a lot of video that's of, of the the south side of the, of the building. There's pictures from PD and fire that have uh, showing the gaping holes in the building. So it wasn't it wasn't surprising me when that building came down because when I went to the, the command post in Western Bessie and, and walked a little bit more south, you can see that this building is going to come down just by the way the holes were. I mean, it's like yeah. So I'm surprised it stayed up that long. You was you expected to collapse earlier? Oh, much earlier. That's yeah. why I went to meet the two chief local. Let's get out of here. We'll be the next sure. uh, three victims. The next steps were basically after after the events itself. The next steps were basically to look for survivors. But I think that basically ended in twenty four hours, and you made the assessment that there wasn't going to be. Although there were people that survived World Trade Center. There's a great story. I want I like to get your thoughts. I just thought of something. Um, there was a fireman who was located and they made a whole document. It was a great documentary. Jay Jonas, uh, <laughs> who survived in Stairwell B. He's a great guy, uh, the captain. Uh, yeah. His company, uh, were, I believe that the story was is that they were bringing down this woman that was not, not a healthy person, a right. reset person, right. but the building one, I think it was really Tower One, that collapsed around them. They got out. I don't know how fast they got out? It was a couple of hours, but they were the last ones out. Right. They were the last. The story was is that when the towers collapsed, that stairwell managed to survive because the other firemen, I think it was like eight people. I'm not sure about the exact number, but it was like eight or nine people. And they were basically in this very short stairwell, short. And um basically they just hold their they held their hats. And basically just waited for it all to end. And all they heard was what you described was dead silence. And then all yeah. of a sudden this light came about on top of them. And it was basically, they said, well, wait a minute, we're at the bottom. Why are we looking at the light? Not realizing that the, the whole building had collapsed. Well, um, it was very surreal when we, my Rick and I got uh, thrown about 20 feet or so in that dead silence. And there was a couple of uh, uh, police officers next to us. And they were trying to find out what, what door and all and all of a sudden, you see the, the spears of light coming through the smoke, just like, you know, mm. during the sunrise or sunset, exactly like that. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the silence was very eerie. And uh, I know what they were, they were talking about. Like, why do we see the sunlight when there's no building around us? Correct. Right. Jay Jones, fact, good guy. Oh, he's, he's fantastic. Um, 
one 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 sound that was prescient and it was an eerie sound actually um that i'd noticed in news clips uh was the sound of silence with the dust hanging in midair but you could also hear the alarm sounds of the firemen's i think radios or not going off it's it's a pass alarm what does what that does is that if you're not moving for 20 seconds, it'll start to beep. And if you're not moving for another 20 seconds, it goes off like irritating sound. The idea behind it, so if you hear that, you know there's a fireman that's not moving. So you go to that sound. Right. A lot of the guys took off their masks and so on, just threw it to the side and without turning off their past devices. And some of them were probably for some of the guys that were killed. Yeah, some of the, right, unfortunately. The, um, the next steps taken in the days afterwards was uh, to get the debris out of the way and basically conduct a cleanup. Who was involved with the uh, cleanup? Well, it was it was multifaceted. You had yep. the police department that had to do to take a look at everything that's for evidence. Everything was marked for evidence: beams, wood, whatever it was. And we realized early on that the uh, there was too many dump trucks going over the bridges. I mean, we're talking about 1.2 million tons yes. of debris. So that's where we uh, during a declaration of emergency. You relaxed a lot of laws, so that's how we dredged the uh, the the pier there. So we would start throwing the you know debris into that, and that would take it over, over to the landfill. Yeah, fre fresh kills. Oh, yeah, fresh kills. Fresh kills. Yeah, fresh right. kills. Fresh landfill. kills yes. landfill. And um, was it? This is another problem facing the first responders and yourself was also the danger of um. Of uh, the dust itself yeah. and the chemicals that were in the, in the uh, air. Mm -hmm. Were you were you were initially worried about this uh, this problem, or was it, because it, it seemed initially that you didn't get the proper warnings or the proper gear to protect yourselves? Well, yeah, we had the bunker gear, we had the masks, and uh, it's you know the masks only last fifteen minutes. All right, oh, eventually wow. we got we uh, we got about truckloads, not truckloads, but you know, a lot of shipments of uh, the the masks that work in chemical environments. So we're trying to make sure the guys just wear the masks. And most of them did, but still at the same time too, you know, you really don't know exactly what's in the dust and right. any type of chemical, any type of uh, mineral so on that my face and my was completely that numb, but tingling from that dust. And uh, when we got hit, I took my t-shirt and that's how I breathed through my shirt t-shirt. I wasn't breathing this stuff in, you know, and, uh, but when people were saying, well, the, the, uh, the, the dust is not that harmless. I go, how do you know? Right, <laughs> I mean, right. it's, you know, you had below a fire, burning debris. We have no idea what debris is. You had free, two tanks of Freon, 160,000 pounds of Freon exposed to the burning uh, fuel. And that Freon uh, was, uh, we were concerned about that if it got hot, it turned into phosphate. And phosphate is one of the most poisonous chemicals known to man. It's also shock sensitive. So if that thing would have, you know, ticked off, it would have been like a very large explosion. Oh, I was not, I was not even aware of that much. Yeah. Um, so the, the yeah, the, I mean, there was numerous tests. I mean, there's a paper um, that was written by Morgan Langman and, and um, Michael Cohen about the health effects of the World Trade Center dust. And they called it an unprecedented disaster because this actually was like part two to the, the deaths of many firemen that came even later. Mm -hmm. um, and still they're feeling, even now, even 20, at the current day, 2023, we're still seeing um, a number of firemen and first responders basically succumbing to the many cancers 
that were um, afflicted upon them for their service at Ground Zero. In fact, I think so uh, far, additional 460 have passed away. Four, is it 460? Yeah, something like that. So I, I believe, I think John Stewart, the comedian, basically went to Capitol and spoke on your behalf, even. That was phenomenal. The guy was phenomenal. Yeah. When he asked, when he asked Fiverr before he passed on, he goes, "You you get any these business cards? Because I get all the business cards right here, all the mass cards." Yeah. You know, so uh, I mean, tats off to Stewart. The guy was just. <laughs> you do know, you he, wish? He was a... Yeah. Let me ask you too. Do you do you wish there was more of a more voices like John Stewart later to speak on your behalf to give to give assessment at the uh, of uh, our U.S. government. Regarding the farm, well, yeah, of course. But uh, and I think John sent a signal, and uh, yeah, we could use a lot more celebrities, you know, that would step up. I mean, Congress is Congress. I mean, I just, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get, get into that nonsense. I mean, yeah. to give you a little short story, as a commissioner in Nassau County, I get a phone call from the uh, county attorney's house, uh, office and saying that the city court council wants to stop by and talk to you about Tower Seven. So okay, the doing goes, hey, if you weren't working for us, then go go for it. This guy comes into my office with four people from uh, NIST, and they would ask me questions about Tower 7. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with that, I go, we would like to know. I told the whole scenario like I told you. Um, so, and, and, the National uh, Institute of Science Technology came to my office in Nassau County, and they were asking me questions about Tower 7. And they said, oh, you know, I told them what's going on. And she, they said to me that uh, they were hypothesizing that the building came down because a fire started on the third floor by the uh, generators. And I shook my head. I go, no, it didn't start by, you know, the third floor. It was up in the upper levels like we talked about before. Mm -hmm. I go, well, where did you get this story from? Well, we have pictures of the fire on the third floor. I go, well, yeah, fires do drop down elevator shaft, staircase, and so on, and uh, other uh, ventilation systems. But it started on the third floor. And they, I go, do you have the blueprints, the floor plans? They go, no. Do you have uh, pictures of the south side of the building and north side of the building? They go, no. They go, how are you hypothesizing that this is occurring, mm -hmm. that the building seven came down? So I showed them where to get the plans. I told them where to get the photographs. I got a phone call from one of the people from the department, uh, the Commerce Department, and they were apologizing for wasting my time. I go, I don't apologize. And he goes, we're going to do the whole report again. So two years later on, they came back with a report that looked like, you know, they did their homework. Right, sure. So, so you know, you have people telling you from the EPA that the, the air is okay. The building came down because of the X, Y, and Z. And, you know, you have the uh, FBI and CEA really blowing, you know, blowing away about, you know, covering our bases and protecting us. So we don't have too much uh, faith in our federal agencies. No, I don't blame you because during the 9-11 Commission, one of the big arguments from the, from the fire department, as well as the victims' families uh, who are currently uh, undertaking a civil suit against Saudi Arabia was that Rudy Giuliani basically um, was a, was considered a catalyst for not upgrading the fire radio systems of the fire department. Is that, uh, is that familiar with you? Well, the, the radios are always, what I remember, were always being updated. Uh, I think what it was is that it's a very difficult area to coordinate to have someone that could talk to fire, police, EMS, sanitation, the sheriff department, school security, you know, that's very difficult to do. But uh, our radio system was, I thought, it was pretty up to date. It was pretty up to date. Um, with the rebuilding of the World Trade Center, now we're one world trade. Um, is it your worry that something like this could happen in the future again? That's it. I won't be surprised if anything will happen again. Now, will they go back, go after Tower 7 and Tower 1, the two buildings? 
they could. Uh, will they go someplace else? They probably would go hit someplace else. But right now, uh, you know, I think the cybersecurity is the biggest threat right now. I mean, look at the, uh, you know, the pipeline coming up from the south. They they hacked into that. Suffolk County is still going through a bad uh, IT system here. Shut down the whole government for the last three months. So I think the uh, cybersecurity system is, uh, I think, the biggest threat because it could really hurt us big time, especially with hospitals, medical decisions, so on. Um, what what is your biggest worry currently regarding international terrorism or uh, the weaknesses of uh, the civil uh, sector of the uh, New York City? Okay. Is, is that is that the worry? Uh, the future of New York City is what would you strengthen? Right at the top of my head is the uh, is the cybersecurity. Yeah. I mean, right now we've got artificial intelligence, which I'm very concerned about. Uh, yes. I don't know, I don't know, where, I don't know where that's going. But when you shut down IT systems, how do hospitals work? How do PD and fire communicate back and forth? Because everything is all on, you know, this, um, based on IP, Internet of a Protocol, you know, and phones and so on. But uh, that's that. Then you cripple, you cripple a country just by doing that, and our banking system, every, on and on. Sure. So, uh, you know, just to wrap up, Richard, um, what what are you currently doing now? I mean, you're, you're always active. Uh, oh. And what are your concerns for the future regarding the fire department in New York City? Well, my concerns for all the agencies is about, uh, you know, safe and secure operations and so on. I mean, I came on in the 70s and the fires then are totally different than they are today. I mean, my one son, uh, Richie, he's involved with a lot of research. And uh, they're looking at smoke explosions, uh, looking at flashovers much more rapidly. Mm. Uh, you have, I mean, we can go into a, a building, it's wood, paper, so on, and maybe some cotton. But now everything you turn around, it's like, you know, your iPhone, made of fuel, plastics, right. Right. you know, and uh, the clothing, the walls. The fires are much faster, more explosive. And the tactics that they're keeping up, I mean, FDNY, like a good friend of mine, former commissioner and chief department, Sal Casano. You can run FDNY out of a phone booth. That's how efficient it is. You know, they're really, it's a class act. And uh, EMS is really great. But, uh, you know, getting the, right right now, the way the current events are going on is that is the uh, cybersecurity. That's number one. Right. What was the biggest lesson learned on September 11, 2001? Oh, I was never heard about that one. But I think uh, the biggest lesson is that, uh, it was one of the recommendations in the 9-11 uh, report is that we have to be more imaginative, okay? How can we get hurt? Not by fire, not by uh, diseases, but uh, what is a, what's the bad guy thinking about? And we, mm -hmm. didn't, we, we weren't thinking about the planes running into the Vatican, but they didn't, but they were running into us. So how, what, what's our weak spots? That's, how, uh, that's, that's the lessons learned. Richard Rotans, former Office of Emergency Management 